Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm assisted today by the lovely Hannah, Hannah Tesco. I'm her mama. Um, And this is a supplemental episode that we did. It was a chat that we did with Brigitte Webster in the Tutor Learning Circle a couple weeks ago with her talking about what our tutor friends would have been doing to get ready for winter. At this time of year, there was a lot of work to do to get ready for winter. And Brigitte is talking about it. So you can find out about the live chats we do if you join the free Tutor Learning Circle, tutorlearningcircle.com. Um, I know a couple of you have already requested access and I just need to go in and, and approve it. I'm sorry for that. Um, so I hope you enjoy this chat with Brigitte on how the tutors would have been preparing for winter. And hop on into the Tutor Learning Circle for more live chats. We just had our tutor tea party, Christmas tea party, and it was lovely. Um, we had chats with Carol Ann Lloyd and Brigitte talked about Christmas food. So I'll be posting that here soon as well. All right. Enjoy the chat. It brings it home to you that people really had to live by the season. And one thing I've noticed in particular is there is no room for error. You really have to go with the weather and the right time to do particular things. And um, if you miss it, that's it. So the most important thing for a Tudor home, and any Tudors, whether they lived in a manor house or in at the farm, was in the autumn, you checked the your roof because you do get um, leaks. And if you don't sort them in the autumn, you're going to be very wet all winter long. Uh, So that always would have taken top priority. And for the first time in the 16th century uh, during Tudor Indian, they also had to maintain their chimney. Now, chimneys, as we know them, I have a lovely fire behind me, but that was a fairly new thing to the ordinary Tudor home. Um, Before the early 1500s, uh, you wouldn't have had any chimneys. 
but clearly chimneys have to be cleaned, especially in the autumn. Uh, otherwise they pose a huge fire risk. Mm -hmm. And it's all got to do with what you burn. Now we again assume that all the Tudors all the time used firewood to uh, burn in their chimneys. But by the 1500s, there are severe shortages of firewood in England. We don't uh, generally think about that, but they were. It got so bad by Elizabethan times that they had to switch to coal, um, which brought all sorts of other problems uh, with it. But if you burn wood as we do, well seasoned, generally you are okay. But as soon as you start burning unseasoned wood, that means it's not quite um, dry, uh, it leaves a type of tar inside your chimney and that will catch fire and it is and was the reason for many house fires. So you know it makes a difference whether you get it right or wrong. Um, obviously the other thing is you had to always prepare well ahead of what, where you were. So mm -hmm. come autumn, people were already thinking about the spring. So what you did is uh, you had to prepare the ground where you were growing your food for next year. And one of the things that people would have done is uh, to sow uh, beans, fava beans, so the, the type that you grew on the field, not in your garden. What they did in the autumn was generally things that they started well in the summer. Uh, for instance, um, they gathered uh, herbs. They started to gather herbs in uh, the summer. And now was the time when they were nicely dried and they could do something with it and that was often left to the lady of the house to do so she didn't get her hands dirty she didn't do the maintenance in the garden i do now <laughs> having no staff you know covid <laughs> but that's something they did now the other thing they did in the autumn was getting ready for the much shorter days. Now here in England, it gets very, very dark by four at the very latest on a rainy dark day like today, 3.30 and it gets dark. So you can't go to bed at 3.30, you have to do things. Um, so you need to make sure you've got adequate light. Now in Tudor England, that was candles and this was the season when a lot of candle making went on. Now we are lucky we've got bee wax. Unfortunately that was very very expensive indeed and most people had to use other sources um, like animal fat which did the same job but uh, we know from accounts that it must have been a very, very unpleasant smell. And then you obviously have the rush lights. Um, I've missed that one. 
I'm in trouble. We have rush by our moot. I should have harvested that in August, dried it by October, and now sitting here dipping it into animal fat. But I was totally unaware and I missed that opportunity, which will cost us dearly because now we have to invest in bee wax. So not very good. The Tudors would not have been very impressed with me at all. Now, obviously, um, we, we have now uh, talked about that uh, you always had to think ahead. And the same was also for the food. Food obviously was their most and biggest concern. Uh, throughout the winter months, you do not have as many access to fresh fruit as you would normally have throughout the rest of the year. Um, the nobility had one big advantage because it was hunting season now. Hunting season starts now and goes right up to Christmas and a little bit after that. So obviously Henry, as we know, he loved it. Elizabeth loved hunting. So lots of fresh meat coming in through hunting, but it was a meat you couldn't buy. You either had your own uh, deer park, which actually was called a forest. So the English word forest actually means deer park. It does not mean a wood with lots of trees necessarily. And if you didn't have such a deer park, uh, or you had no good friends who had one, you could not obtain any uh, venison or any game. And look, can I just interrupt? Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, that's like the, the new forest was such a, that was like where Henry went hunting a lot, right? It was like Absolutely. in the new forest and that's where that whole thing came from. Yes, yes. And it um, obviously the new forest, name New Forest was one that wasn't necessarily open as a deer park then. And um, it, it caused a lot of trouble for the people who lived there because you weren't allowed to go into a forest because a forest was private. So you weren't even allowed to go and gather firewood where in a normal wood, you were allowed to do those things. So to turn any land from a wood into a forest caused major problems for the ordinary people. But as we know, their uh, life didn't always matter, sadly. But uh, November in particular was also the season where a lot of um, domestic animals like pigs would have um, been slaughtered. Now, we, I hear a lot uh, that people assume all animals come November and uh, the 11th of November was a classic day when that was started. I just quickly have to check on my fire. It's okay, I just heard it go. <laughs> uh, right. Um, and uh, so the 11th of November, Martin Mass, was generally traditionally the day when um, the slaughter of the animals started. But that was really only done in the up to the late medieval times 
when food was really scarce for the animals as well. So they pretty much automatically killed any livestock in November and then preserved it uh, to last them through the winter. But interestingly, in the 16th century, things are beginning to change and you can clearly detect um, an attempt in leaving all animals alive as long they possibly could. Because obviously come spring, if you killed off all your livestock, you had to go out and buy new ones. Um, uh, especially with chickens, you wouldn't necessarily want to do that because chickens supplied you not just with meat, but also with the eggs and obviously chicks, new ones. And the same goes for beef. Yes, it is true. Uh, if you compare England with the other countries in Europe, we did eat more beef here in comparison, but still, uh, it, it was a big thing to, to kill your cows, which supplied you with milk, and the ox was needed uh, as a tool, basically pulling your plow. So you really thought a long, a hard and long before you did that. Uh, so Tudors really tried mm -hmm. to not slaughter animals unless they had to, except for the pig because the pig really was only its sole purpose was to be eaten and therefore not many pigs made it through the winter uh, and uh, there's definitely uh, good evidence that most of them did get slaughtered in November and then they needed to prepare that meat for Christmas because um, Pork was one of the main Christmas meats, uh, the most important one. One of them, uh, for instance, was brawn. Brawn is a fairly salty piece of pork. Uh, the Tudors loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, it uh, appears almost at all menus around Christmas. I tried it once and that was the only thing where all of us, the whole family agreed, no, never again. <laughs> it really is so salty, but it had to be because uh, the way how they prepared it is once uh, the pig was uh, slaughtered, the meat got chopped up and then put in a very salty brine solution for 15 days and that makes it really really salty okay it keeps that much longer uh, there are accounts of beef in brine uh, lasting two three months some even claim up to april I'm not trying it. <laughs> you know, there are limits to what I will attempt in order to find out whether it's possible or not. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, that is. Can I, just ask you Can I step in here? Because something that you said made me want to ask you to follow up on that. So you said about how people by the Tudor period were trying to not kill their animals through the winter. 
what kind of advances in like food, like how did they feed them then? Because isn't the problem just how are you going to feed them through the winter? So what what changed that allowed them to be able to, because presumably nobody would have wanted to slaughter their animals if they could have yeah. kept them. Uh, true, but uh, you know, a lot of the things that people did was based on tradition. It always has been done like this. So change took a long time to, to really get going. But um, um, one of the things is um, temperatures slightly changed. And especially the early Tudor period, uh, actually was very good in terms of constant food supply, and that included the animals. For instance, hay. Uh, the summers were generally dry, um, or as dry as you can expect in England, uh, and warm. So you had lots of crop um, that um, you could rely on being ready come autumn. Uh, animals were generally fed with uh, hay, but uh, also um, parsnips, turnips. There, 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 uh, there was a time when uh, people didn't eat those, but more fed them to their animals. And obviously pigs, we all know, were led into the um, wood to pick up any nuts chestnuts uh, or any nuts whatsoever. So they used all of what uh, nature provided. And if there was plenty of grass, and uh, we do have some uh, winters in England where you could actually have grass all through the winter. Um, yeah, I, I think they also started to manage the animals better. Um, it's all down to experience as well and trying out new um, approaches. Uh, the 16th century, um, when you look at food and how food provi was provided, there are such a lot of new tendencies coming in. And um, people at the forefront uh, obviously had to prove, like today, you know, um, that this is good, let's try it. Yes, there might be a little bit more risk involved, but you can always slaughter your sheep or lamb later on if you do run out of food, but give it a go, try it. And the other thing is um, animals also kept or helped to keep small farmhouses warm because we often forget that uh, small dwellings often had the domestic animals still at that time live in the same house. So if you get rid of your animals, it is going to be that much colder inside. So it's a balancing act. What I uh, found interesting is this year, this year I have tried to follow instructions on how to pick apples and pears and take them through, as they say, right up to March. And it's really interesting because it's clear that they did not have the scientific understanding why fruit would go rotten. But they knew that what they had to do is provide an airy 
surrounding for the apple or the pear. Um, but keep it dry, but not too dry. And what they did is, and a lot of the farmer's instructions tell you very clearly how to put the pears or the wardens and the apples into the straw and how they had to constantly go back and twist them slightly round, changing them to make sure that every bit of apple or fruit had um, access to fresh air, that the fresh air had to circulate around the fruit without it getting wet and obviously without uh, mice damage. Um, and so far, I'm doing good. I still got apples that look very nice yeah. uh, and pears. So yeah, it's, it is really interesting because I didn't think they would last, but we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> And then after that, what? how would they store them through the winter? Uh, that's exactly, that's it. That's what they did. Oh, okay. They had them oh, okay. somewhere cool, but dry, uh, lying on straw, so a soft um, surface. You just like pickle and them or anything? Just, or yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I am that that that's what I'm going to try this time around. How long I can keep them going before I lose one or two. Um, it will be interesting because different instructions claim different degrees of success. I am convinced it also depends on uh, the particular type of apple or pear. Some, like the wardens, were famous for never going off, but then again, you couldn't eat them raw either. <laughs> Uh, you have to cook them to soften them. So, yeah. And by the end, during the 16th century, sugar becomes more popular, right? So would they have been canning anything or like not the modern, uh, the, the Elizabethan equivalent of canning? Yes. Um, well, the first preserves are actually hundreds and hundreds of years old, but they used honey. So what mm. they uh, did, they yeah, immersed a whole fruit completely inside honey. So no bacteria, no air, nothing could get to it. And with the arrival of cheaper sugar, um, in England they did, they always had sugar. Um, sugar starts to appear really early on, I think in the 1300s. Uh, but by then it was imported all the way from India, all the way through uh, Venice and so on. So by the time it got to England, it really was expensive. And it was only a spice. So they couldn't preserve with sugar, not even the wealthy. Um, then uh, at the, um, in the 15th century, we are beginning to get sugar from European countries like Cyprus. Um, then uh, they start, the Portuguese start planting sugar cane in Madeira, for instance. So we get sugar through those countries, but it still is just too expensive to have large amounts at your disposal to, uh, to, to, to preserve fruit. It was really only when the Portuguese and the Sp Spanish took the sugar cane to um, the Caribbean 
and um, also Brazil. Those were the two places where they first started to plant them. And as we know, they did very well. Uh, the Spaniards and the Portuguese, to start with, used the locals to uh, look after those plantations, but managed to, well, almost kill all of them, either due, due to hard work or a disease. And it was only in the mid 16th century then they started to import, sadly, African slaves to take over and do the, the work. So sugar came at a huge price. I think the figure I've got in my head is um, 10,000 people. Now that is a lot when you think 16th century. You know, it might not be a, la a lot today, but in, in, in 16th century terms, that is just criminal. Um, but it made sugar a lot more cheaper. I mean, still out of reach of the normal people, but if you were nobility and you had a steady income and you wanted to show off, you could now for the first time import sugar in bigger quantities. So honey was replaced with sugar. And uh, it's the late 16th century, so we're talking Elizabethan times, that we get cookery books that specifically now concentrate on making preserves. And those preserves are for the first time ever, mostly geared at fruit and how to make it last. So you get the first types of marmalade, which is nothing like our marmalade now. Uh, I don't know whether people have seen it before. It would have looked something like this. You can pick it up, see, it's not even sticky. This one oh. is made from quince. Uh, because the first marmalade was made from quince. It came from Portugal, actually. And the Portuguese, I understand, for quince is uh, marmelo. I hope I pronounce it fairly correctly. If not, I do apologize. But that's where the name marmalade comes from. So they used lots of sugar to make marmalades. Um, but uh, also all sorts of candied fruit, candied flowers uh, was particularly popular. Uh, that's the one thing I'm still working on uh, to candy flowers. It's not that easy, actually, when you follow those very early um, recipes. Um, but yes, they candied almost everything. Uh, roots, for instance, the most... Um, Famous one is the one from uh, a plant called sea holly, which uh, is a kind of thistle. Um, magnificent blue flower in the summer, but they used the root and they candied the root. Um, I've tasted it. Well, yeah, <laughs> you can eat it. Uh, it's not chocolate, no. Um, but uh, yeah, so sugar was definitely a very important uh, preserving uh, medium, uh, but salt was still very important. And we mustn't forget vinegar. 
Vinegar uh, was definitely another one. And I think it's very important because that's what was available to the common people. Uh, vinegar could be produced homemade. Here in England, they would have used uh, very tiny wild apples called crab apples. And they made vinegar, very mild vinegar by the name of virtues. In Italy, they made the same, but they used grapes instead, um, unripe grapes. And that vinegar together with salt was used to pickle almost everything. Um, obviously we know um, vegetables like cucumbers, samphire is another one. Samphire is actually hugely, hugely interesting because it's uh, a very local vegetable that grows along the coast. And now living so close to the coast, I can get it even today, it's lovely. Um, but they also pickled walnuts, they pickled meat, fish, but fish, we still do have the pickled, the herring, you know. Yes, yes. And one thing I quickly want to go back to is um, the famous stockfish. Uh, simply because it played such a huge role in food preservation. Now, stockfish, we know because that's what most people ate through Lent when meat was not allowed. Uh, now, the interesting thing about stockfish is how they prepared it. Uh, the most uh, common one was fished as far as Iceland, which is extraordinary. So English fishermen uh, traveled in the spring all the way first to Ireland and then passed right up to Iceland. And there on their boats, they first salted the fish and then dried them there because you can only do that in those very cold but dry parts of Europe. Mm. It wouldn't work, not even down here in England. It's too warm here already. But it's amazing to think that the vast quantities of stockfish made from cod came as far as Iceland and that in the 16th century. You then obviously also had um, the red herring and the white herring. Uh, that was produced in England. Again, they produced, uh, you needed salt. Um, so the herring, for the white herring, the salt, uh, the, the herring was put into salt water, left there for a few hours. Um, and then again, was packed solid into barrels of quite coarse salt. Um, it had to be very coarse salt because otherwise you would have had to use a lot more in quantity. And it had to be a cheap but effective way. So they used really coarse, but often um, not very clean salt. I've got a little bit here, just in case you can see. See, it's, it's not even white and it's oh. quite coarse. 
So that was the white herring. People sometimes ask, so what was the red herring then? It was basically a white herring that, that they then put up for drying, not in the fresh air, but in little smoking huts. And by being smoked for days on end, sometimes weeks, apparently they changed the color into a touch of red and therefore the red herring. How funny, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. The people asked me so many times and every time I thought, God, I, I, I have to find out what the difference is because I, I didn't know. I thought uh, at some stage it must be two different types of herring, but no, it's not. It's just the red herring was um, smoked. Yeah. Okay. So people right now are our tutor friends in December are thinking, right? Anything else that they're doing? Uh, right, let me quickly have a, a, a I think I've, uh, oh, yes, there was. Haha, <laughs> good thing you asked. <laughs> it's always the thing when you just have a chat, you do forget uh, vital bits, don't you? Um, butter, mm, one of my favorite topics, butter, because, Tudor England did not use butter to spread on their bread. That was something the Dutch uh, immigrants introduced uh, the English to in late Elizabethan times. No, the English used butter only for the preservation of meat. Now, what they did is, ah, I'll show you something quickly. <laughs> so they cooked the, their meat very, very briefly, just to close the pores. Then uh, they put pack the meat into an earthenware pot called a galley pot. So that's galley pot. It's called a galley pot because um, these vessels came via galleys from Venice and the term state. So the meat was very briefly put into hot water just to close the pores. And then it was put into these galley pots and sealed with liquid salted butter. What it does is it makes sure no bacteria and no air can get to the meat. And apparently that's the only purpose of butter in Tudor England. And uh, so far, and I've done a lot of research that backs it up. I have not been able to find out any recipes that use a butter to any great quantities. So every now and then they use butter for cooking, uh, especially um, late Elizabethan recipes seem to have butter. Uh, a little bit of a knob of butter to go into their meat dishes, but. Uh, Generally, in early Tudor times, it was mostly used for preserv preserving meat. But uh, another typical Christmas fashion of preserving meat was actually the pie. The pie, uh, again, was um, 
serving a purpose, not just eating. It was referred to in early Tudor times as the coffin. What a name, eh? Coffin. You're eating a coffin. No, you didn't. That's the interesting thing. In early Tudor times, uh, the pastry only served as a cooking vessel because um, it was a dough made out of flour and water. Very tough. Not tasty at all. But it was very strong. And they made um, the casing, put the meat in, in particular venison, and then put a lid on, so another pastry lid on top, and they cooked the meat in that vessel. And it was the most effective way to cook something and retain all the juices, but also it made it last because you didn't have to eat the pie then and there. You could cook it two weeks. Some recipes claim it lasts two months. And there was actually, let me quickly see whether I can find that. There is, um, where was it? Oh yes, it must have been very effective because there is one case in the Woolerton um, household up in, I think they were in Leicestershire, but correct me if I'm wrong. But in 1587, so we are talking in Elizabethan times, the family bought a loin of veal and made two pies. The first one they ate on the 18th of March and the second one on the 15th of April. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, it might not be the most uh, effective fridge as such, but it clearly lasted four weeks. And with mm -hmm. meat, that's quite, uh, quite something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another little uh, thing I came, uh, um, that made me laugh and I came across yesterday. Somebody asked me about Brussels sprouts, you know, being talking about Christmas food and so on. I said, well, did the Tudors have Brussels sprouts for Christmas? And the, the quick answer is no. They didn't have Brussels sprouts because uh, they were only really um, sort of invented or <laughs> uh, they were more, uh, I call it an accident actually, because what happened is, I have read numerous accounts how they stored um, cabbage. Now, what they did is they obviously in, around this time they harvested the cabbage and then they hang it upside down from a ceiling so you have the cabbage hanging down with the root system up there and apparently if you allow the cabbages to hang like that for a few months so throughout the winter the plant will produce tiny little sprouts along the stem and it was the people in uh, what today we understand as Belgium who observed that and thought, hmm, I wonder whether we could cultivate that somehow. And that's how it came about. Uh, they observed something that preserving 
showed them and I thought, hmm, we wonder if we can actually do something. And that's how Brussels sprouts came about. But um, the first account of that, uh, I think, goes back to 1547 when a Dutch botanist does actually name them for the first time. And because it, he was, uh, he was um, living in Belgium, it was called Brussels sprouts, but it did not make it to England that quickly. It took another, as so often, it took another few uh, centuries for it to make it to England. So, no. But I thought it was interesting that uh, they were able to come out with new vegetables just by looking into the old techniques. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I think that is, we have now actually covered all the different uh, preservation methods. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is it. This is what the, no ice house, no uh, ice houses only started to appear in this late 17th century. So a good hundred years later. Okay, well, so if people have questions for Brigitta about getting ready for, for, for winter or anything in general about cookery, um, you can either type them or if you want to raise your hand, we, you can unmute and um, let's see. And I don't know if you meant to unmute. If you did, yes. please. Yeah, there she is. Okay. Okay. You mentioned Go pickled nuts. I've pickled vegetables before. How do you yes. pickle nuts? At uh, the same way as everything else, uh, you basically have to make up a concoction between uh, brine uh, and vinegar. And you just uh, put it in the glass. Most uh, recipes of the time actually mention a glass, something like this. This is actually a 16th century glass. Um, and they put it in there and then um, used waxed linen like this. So it's just basically a piece of linen cloth which they cover in wax and when it cools down you can then put it neatly over there and with a string hold it tight. And that's how they would have pickled anything, even nuts, walnuts. All the recipes I have come across um, do use walnuts. So I don't know whether it means that um, hazelnuts or other nuts are not suitable, but I guess it's more because walnuts were used for cookery where uh, hazelnuts were a snack. Yeah, so, oh, Monica has her hand up. Let's see, go ahead, Monica. Unmute. I have a question, have a question about um, fires. Do they, I, like, I know in, um, in like Ireland, they would use the, the peat moss and, in, uh, and then also like in the West here in America, we would use uh, uh, like buffalo chips. Was any, um, any um, vegetation or um, refuge used like that as fires? Yes, absolutely. Um, peat was one, definitely, uh, especially in the areas uh, that are fairly low, like Norfolk here um, and Suffolk. 
but uh, peat had to be harvested in the summer and then dried because uh, when you try and burn it when it's still a little bit damp it, it doesn't burn very well and obviously it's also very unpleasant in producing smoke um, they also um, used a kind of bracken uh, so a type of fern dried but that was more something that um, common people used. Um, charcoal. Uh, charcoal was made almost on every single estate and apparently was um, a very clean way, um, a very clean uh, material to use for burning and also cooking. Um, but confusingly, they called charcoal coal just like the mineral coal. So when you do research, it's often exceptionally hard to, to be decisive. Is this now the mineral coal, which started to be used in Elizabethan times, especially in areas like um, Yorkshire, where they used it for industrial purposes. But as um, firewood uh, or uh, woods generally started to um, be a, a problem in uh, it was so much deforested here. Um, they started to also use coal, so the mineral coal, um, which brought all sorts of problems. Um, not for the new houses that had a proper built chimney so much, but a lot of the smaller houses still had uh, their main fire in the center of the living area and uh, any wood smoke used to disappear through the roof and the rafters because wood doesn't produce a lot of smoke if it's well dried and seasoned but coal does. Um, coal also produces a lot of very unpleasant ash that is really difficult to get rid of. So using coal was bad news and people did complain when you go through original sources you come across um a lot of people complaining and saying this coal is no good um so when they complain you know it's true coal the mineral they're referring to because charcoal would not have caused the same problems and they also use dung cow stung and it had a it had a name but you know what i can't remember it now but it it, it it had a name and apparently when it was dry it was okay <laughs> not sure when wow. i want to try it on my fire though but <laughs> yeah yeah that dung was also used perfect um, you know what, we, we're just at about an hour now, and I know a lot of people are doing this while they're eating lunch and um, on the East Coast, so I think we'll um, let people go back to work and go back to stuff, but Brigitte, you are fabulous. Where can people buy your book and learn more about you and 
and come visit you and all that. Plug your stuff. Yes. Oh, I actually have been approached by a publisher who want me to, well, they want me to write a book on how to feed the Tudors and the history of the food that the Tudors ate. So... <laughs> But you do you do have your book that you your banquet at Old Hall, right? Yes, yes, yes. I do have that. <laughs> People can write to you if they want to know about that. Um, awesome. Somebody said very informative. Thanks, Brigitte and Heather. Thank you so much, Brigitte. It was so informative. Um, super awesome. Thank you so much for um, for being part of this and for stopping by and for saying hi and for sharing your knowledge and everything like that. Um, very grateful. Aww. Yeah. Thank you for watching me. <laughs> I could watch you all day. And you're going to be a tutor con next year, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it will be that much more special because we had to, well, <laughs> all undergo the plague. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's all actually right. one of the things I'm looking into this year how people coped in times of plague. Yeah. So it's very yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. So awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll just wish everybody a good rest of your day. Have a good evening, Brigitte. Have a good everything wherever you are. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Bye. Good night. Good night. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again. Soon. We'll talk to you again soon. Merry Christmas All right. and happy New Year. Awesome. <laughs> we'll be back. We'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.